A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences, including writers, musicians and of course other artists, and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Pierre Huig, an artist who's experimented over more than 30 years with the form of the exhibition and the very nature of art. His works are complex systems involving a host of elements from life forms, including plants, animals and cellular organisms, to inanimate objects and technologies. Pierre pays particular attention to the spaces in which these disparate factors come together and bleed into each other, leading to constantly evolving, strange and often spellbinding experiences. While we as viewers undoubtedly play a role too, Pierre said that his pieces can be indifferent to witnesses, so our place within these ecosystems is often richly ambiguous. Pierre was born in 1962 in Paris and today lives and works in New York. He studied at the École Nationale Supérieure des Arts Décoratifs in Paris in the mid-1980s and at the end of that decade became part of a radical community of artists in Paris installing posters in public sites around the city. While this was a short-lived moment, these early experiences in making art outside of conventional spaces had a lasting effect on him and throughout his career he's ventured beyond museums and white cube spaces as well as challenging them from within. In what are regarded as his first works as a mature artist in the 1990s, Pierre sought to introduce the language of cinema, its production, casting, acting and editing, into an art context, and made a series of works that deconstructed or reflected on notable films. Remake from 1995 was a mundane, scene-by-scene reimagining of Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, and scenario for a sitcom from 1996 was a live casting, screen test and film shoot involving excerpts from films by Stanley Kubrick, Jean-Luc Godard and Ingmar Bergman, where the characters from the films effectively dialogued with each other. The third memory from 1999 blurred the fact and fiction of Sidney Lumet's classic movie Dog Day Afternoon. In these works, Pierre said he was interested in the moment that precedes the moment, and this has been a consistent concern of his. We often feel that his works are in the process of becoming and subject to chance events, and this is apparent in his late 1990s works like Le Carillon and Silence Score, which referred directly to that musical master of chance, John Cage. From the 1990s onwards, Pierre became associated with a group of artists working with similarly experimental approaches to form, space and experience, including two former guests on this podcast, Philippe Pirano and Dominique Gonzalez-Furster. Their work was gathered under the term relational aesthetics by the curator and thinker Nicolas Bourio, an idea that I discuss with Pierre later. But collaboratively and individually, each of them has pushed the idea of the exhibition to its extremes and used the conditions of the exhibition itself as a medium to manipulate and control. This has led to a series of extraordinarily ambitious pieces by Pierre. In The Host and the Cloud, made between 2009 and 2010, he occupied the former Musée des Arts et Traditions Populaires in Paris with a group of people and staged a series of happenings and rituals, some scripted, some entirely improvised, based on three ceremonial days, the Day of the Dead, Valentine's Day and May Day. In 2012, he made Untilled for Documenta, the hugely influential exhibition hosted in Kassel in Germany every five years, based in in a composting facility located in Castle's Hour Park, it was a mysterious combination of this humdrum element of the park landscape with enigmatic objects, constructions and animals introduced by Pierre. 
After a life ahead, a vast installation made for the Skulpturprojekte Münster in Germany captivated visitors by constructing a landscape of speculative fiction on the site of a former ice rink, complete with augmented reality components, an aquarium growing cancer cells informed by environmental data gathered from sensors in the excavated soil beneath the building, and chimera peacocks. For Umwelt at the Serpentine Gallery in 2018, he collaborated with scientists at a Kyoto laboratory using machine learning to analyse human brain activity. The result was projections of fast-moving sequences of images produced through deep image reconstruction, a technique using artificial intelligence as if we were seeing the imprint of thoughts, which evoked recognisable forms while remaining tantalisingly elusive. And in June 2022, he unveiled perhaps his most ambitious project to date at the Kostefos Sculpture Park in Jevnaka in Norway, which he describes in our conversation. Pierre once said in a talk with the Serpentine Gallery's artistic director and a long-time collaborator, Hans Ulrich Obrist, that he was tired of linearity, and he's also consistently escaped the looping format common to installations involving the moving image, for instance. So I began our conversation by asking if, ultimately, unpredictability is the guiding principle of his work. Maybe the loop was also associated with a practice maybe in the 90s, but I think I got, as you just say, or what I say earlier, that I got tired in the predictability of them and needed to see something that will escape somehow that. And, and of course, I have tried to find since different modality uh, allowed in that to happen. So yeah, contingency is central to my practice today. And there is different and we can talk about it but you have to take a different form or I have used different tool for that one of the things I'm really interested in is the way that works with this idea of the score or scenario that you create for certain works and can you tell me what form that score or scenario takes is it kind of in your head or are there sort of written notes how do you form the score or the scenario the score is, I, I would say, is not anymore a word that I would use that I might have used again in the same period of time and as a scenario, because, of course, score are usually written, right, form, and then you normally play them, trying to be as precise as you can, eventually introducing accident, uh, contingency. But uh, I'm more in, into fiction. But anyway, to answer the question, I would say that... Um, it is always a, a mix between things that, uh, that I am uh, constructing and, of course, an occasion, something that occurs on which I'm going to build a, a fiction. Uh, that fiction will then somehow allow to instaurate, or we say, to, to create a set of conditions under which the work will occur. Absolutely. And one of the things that I'm really interested in in terms of the the fiction or the conditions is that very often with your works a kind of rumor develops around them I'm really conscious of in documenta <laughs> that work became almost like a legend in its own time but in the sense that people were saying apparently there's a turtle there or did you see the dog <laughs> and is it right did the dog have a pink leg you know it existed as a kind of framework or a kind of set of values even before many people saw it and it seems to me that the role that that played was sort of central actually to the way that the work happened in the world you know 
Yeah, it's interesting. This I'm not working on that rumor, right? I'm not building it to become a rumor. I would say that probably it comes from the fact that the work is a milieu, uh, and we, we can come back to that, is a milieu that is have an agency and is usually a milieu being a geography, right? Being a space in which you enter. It has usually its own capacity to generate uh, without my own control uh, and, and is always transiting from a form of itself, you know, to another state of itself. It modifies. What I'm trying to say here is that it is not a confrontation between a subject and an object in a conventional way. And that's maybe where the rumor might raise because there's an, maybe an impossibility to capture it in one gaze. So then the reality take over. Also because things are unpredictable. So maybe someone who was there yesterday do not see the same thing as the one who were there today. You know? So the experience, uh, it is not made for. <laughs> you know. One of the things that interests me about that is you've been sort of critical of this term performance. But it seems to me that your work has a really interesting relationship with actors. Can you say more about that? Yeah. No, the word performance, I took a piece out of it in the sense of uh, because it sounds too much like, a, you know, I'm performing something. It's really hysterical. To me, performance is an hysterical. Uh, it's a dress, you know, uh, to perform something too, you know. But I understand the performativity of things. Um, that is very different. What I was trying to escape was that, was the address, the access, you know. Uh, and I was, the last decade at least, uh, tried to, to separate the work from his need to be remarkable. Doing so, I tried the work to be more and more indifferent. So that's why the word performance somehow do not fit anymore, uh, as the word exhibition do not fit. But now to go back to the actor, yeah, I'm interested about either character or actor, but we can hear the word actor in the sense of the one who do an act, right? If we hear the word character, it's different because character is the one who do an act within a fiction. We somehow all are uh, characters, right? Because we live, we are a species in love with fiction. That's what we do. We dress chaos with fiction, you know. And in terms of the way that the attention is distributed through the shows that seems to me to be really interesting as well in terms of the way the different actors come into focus at different time of course that's through moving objects in some earlier works moving walls and things like that but also in the way that for instance in most cases temperature is used in the galleries to protect but with you it becomes a kind of active producer right can you say something about the way that you use the conditions of the galleries as a kind of generative form I really think the exhibition somehow, as I say a few times, is, is an asymmetric ritual. And of course, giving more agency to the other, the work, the, being another, being an alien, a stranger that try to appear. But within this moment of apparition of the work, the space and the time in which it manifests is really a part, it's, it's constitute the work. So it's not a neutral state. What I'm interested in is this crossing of uh, this uh, different element. That's why early on I say unremarkable. 
the more I think about that, the more I am thinking I do not see any more differentiation between the work and the place the work supposed to be in. There is no in. <laughs> and there not being an in, it links to this idea, the way that you've talked about the works that you staged is as if they are a kind of body in the sense that you talk about porosity and the way that works leak out into different environments and into each other. Can you say more about that porosity? Again, uh, the idea of the determination of one is something that I'm trying of here, obviously, to change. There is then a permeability between the different uh, elements and a thought go through all these elements that are themselves dynamic, that are themselves modifying. They're not simply changing, they modify being the transit from a state to another one, as I say earlier on. It is a way to not have a focus on one element that will be there saying, I need to be look at. There is a moment where there's an impossibility to discern, is that the work or is the leak the work? Or is the, uh, this element that this, whatever, um, chemical reaction is the work? Or is that, see, that, that thing that I could not, that is not part of the actual, that is very eventually virtual, or that is also part that I cannot access. And one of the things that seems to me to be really interesting about that is that, for instance, you've done this new piece, Variance, in Norway. Mm -hmm. And this lack of focus on this one singular element, yeah. it seems to me makes a very interesting relationship between your different works. So you might see the documenta piece, for instance, as ultimately leading to where you got to with this new piece, Variance. Do you see it in that productive way from piece to piece? Or is, is that, in a way, too linear way to conceive of your work? Of course, there's, uh, there's things of the past that I still consider or that I want them to change meaning. The form can remain, but they change meaning or uh, reverse. But yeah, variant in that regard have some element of, of the past, eventually, that they are now uh, here for different reasons. Maybe I can speak a bit about variant. Variant is a... Uh, commission uh, is a permanent work it's in Norway and it's in a, I find an island uh, of a river and the whole island is the work I consider Varian as a as what I call an entity milieu being milieu it is at the same time uh, what it is the the given the actual and the possibility of of that uh, island but under another an alternative reality and to in order to do that, uh, so it's the, the island and the, what could be this island. The two are permeable, as we say before, and in order to give rise to that possibility, I use a simulation. We, we scan the whole island, it becomes the landscape of a simulation, and then there is a, a neural network that generates mutations. And these mutations appear on the screens. The whole island is also covered by sensors that capture the bioactivity that also affect the, what is generated. So there's a tension, an endless tension between the actual and its possibility. And then once in a while, the virtual or the digital mutations exit the simulation and they are uh, re-implanted, they manifest themselves on the island at the exact place where they were in the simulations. And there, they, of course, there's an entropy natural to any material that, of course, change the appearance, changing the whole island. Could you give an example of that system, if you like? In what form do they become physical and how is that system of life or entropy 
sort of manifested? So every element that is there on the island, the island was, uh, was under wood pulp factory. So you have all the trash uh, existing from the 19th century, early 20th century, uh, metal parts, whatever, plastic bag of today, and et cetera, et cetera. They all are on this island, but also there is what this island have, a piece of rock forest with wood, et cetera, animal, et cetera. As we scan the island, every of these elements is part of the scan. It's a volumetric scan. And then now uh, we are using GAN uh, or diffusion model or this type of um, system that will then somehow try to recognize a branch or try to recognize the metal part, try to, to guess, to optimize. By doing so, they are starting from the existing and from the existing, they are generating an optimization of what they think that thing is, being a monstrous thing, because that as they generate what is capturing the real, deform or modify what is generate. Now that I have this volumetric shape, it just, it's taking out and it became a physical a three dimensions shape that is reimplanted where it was where it grew from where it emerged from let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests who was the first artist whose work you loved so <laughs> I guess as a kid, I was interested in the multiplicity of things, where things are, I don't know, in French we say it's a grouille. I mean, like it's, it's made out of many things, like a hand's heel is like made out of many. I think that multiplicity of things has always been fascinating. And I think before I encounter art, I think. And I think that's why I found in like Jerome Bosch, for example, mm-hmm. or Tangi. Mm. Or in the early painting of the Trecento, you know, the Italian, I used to love to lose myself. I could not master the whole object, you know. Um, So I was traveling within it. I was engaging with with every element. I would say that's a early attraction. And that speaks really interesting. You'd never say that your work looks anything like Tongi. <laughs> but it's really interesting that there was there is that sort of uneven focus, if you like, in mm-hmm, that work. There's a mm-hmm. kind of, you know, you, when you're looking at Tongi, there are so many elements competing for your attention and that have different effects on each other. Yeah. So I suppose there is a sort of, there is something of a legacy of that early experience of art. Oh, I think so. Yeah, oh, I look also at Max Ernst, uh, all that, I mean, yeah, that, that confusion and I would say that maybe Tanguy is a blur of Jerome Bosch. It's like as if you take the painting and, and blur it, you know, somehow. That's a very nice way of putting it. Actually, when I experienced Umwelt, which was your piece at the Serpentine 2018, mm-hmm. yeah. one of the things I thought was the Surrealists would have loved this tool. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know? Especially in that sort of way, it was a sort of computer-generated kind of automatism. Did, did that occur to you at all when you were making it, about that sort of connection with automatism? Yeah. Of course, of course. No, no, of course, it's clear that there was a, there was a, a practice of the cadavric ski uh, in, in the surrealism or the, the, the automatic writing. And of course, it was interesting that here uh, it was made by a machine and it was really like, of course, it's still an interpretation, obviously. You know, it's a GAN who is just producing an, an optimization, an idea of what 
a mental image is, right? So someone is um, imagining a set of things and that person's brain is activity is captured and then from there that signal is somehow uh, read by a GAN that will then try to guess what that image is. Uh, and of course it's monstrous. It's hybrids, you know, they are <laughs> so it, it has some strong, um, at least like that, a very strong connection to surrealist early images. And which historical artist do you turn to the most today? Yeah, that's always complicated. As I say, it changes, you know, it changes according to... It's not that there is one specifically that I go to. I still have a, a classic attraction for Duchamp, <laughs> which is a bit banal to say. <laughs> but Duchamp, for his contingency, for his out-of-control somehow, for this beyond human, you know, but also for something that is highly important is the playfulness, I think, the spirit. Uh, I like the spirit of Duchamp. I mean, I don't care about the ready-made, really. It's not really something I'm uh, interested in, to be honest. But the large glass is an enigma that I... I uh, it's really something I could just uh, come back endlessly with pleasure. It's a mind pleasure, it's a game. That's what I like in him. And of closer, of course, there, there was a family of people that I, let's say, early 20s, I was looking a lot at Buren and Michael Asher and, uh, you know, like uh, Lawrence Wiener. That was artists that I, after met all of them uh, individually, had long talks with them. And I mean, Lawrence had a beautiful spirit, uh, obviously. Mm. <laughs> um, he was very generous to young artists, wasn't he? Uh, I know that yeah. from Douglas Gordon told me as well that he came to Glasgow and he met with the whole transmission scene up in Glasgow. And, and he did that with you too. That, and it's so impressive, I think, when a sort of a senior artist who's much admired can lend that support to a younger artists. Yeah, I think he was really into that. Probably gave him also something, you know. It's probably something to, to do with curiosity. It's, it's uh, and generosity, obviously, but curiosity on his behalf. Tell me about Buren's presence, if you like, over the French scene into which you emerged. Because, of course, he was a sort of a really important figure in the 70s and that whole documenta moment. And also his criticism of new forms of curating in the 70s and everything else. So he's always seen from Britain to be a kind of talismanic presence in France. But I wonder, what was it like being a French artist? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, of course he was there. And then he, he, not that he was... Dogmatic, I don't think he's someone dogmatic, but he's someone very, very precise with his use of word. So it is the opposite of someone relative. It is not relative. He is someone highly precise in his thinking. I also think that, I mean, he have bring something that strike me, I mean, with his, uh, what he called uh, outil visuel, which is his uh, stripe that we all know and the relation with the context in which they would happen. So both of them, the context and the, or the whatever you call it, the, the environment and the site, because he called about situation, obviously, and the work uh, are both transformer. That was something very, I guess, for me, very important. That is still a part of the toolbox. Uh. I wanted to ask about the way that you've used historic art in the context of the aquarium pieces, because... 
on the one hand, for instance, there was one aquarium or sequence of aquariums which had water lilies from Monet's Givenchy, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. and then there was another where you used a reproduction of a Rancusi as the shell for a hermit crab. Yes, exactly. And I wondered what role, therefore, do those connections to the history of art, if you like, play in that aquarium context? Yeah, it's a shift more. It's not artists that I, I mean, I can like Claude Monet, of course, the water lilies. It's not that I hate them. <laughs> As the Brancusi head, obviously. But uh, no, they are, they are one point images, but they are also tools. Of course, the, the Sleeping Muse is really an, an icon of modernity and in, in that regard inhabiting this modernity uh, with something that have a contingency that is based on instinct and uh, not on knowledge is something that I was interested in and that's the same with to randomly pick part of the Giverny uh, pound uh, the living within it uh, with the mud and the whatever microorganism and uh, and to put it in a tank that's something it will interest me for example it's interesting to know that monet people see monet as painting nature but he basically master <laughs> what we call nature which is a, another invention <laughs> He brought it back. It's not that he went back to paint with his uh, canvas in the nature, yeah. as the narrative goes, but he brings it back home. It's interesting. It's a first geoengineer work somehow. The water lilies are, are also from Marliac, and it was a company who was doing plants, and they breed them to create the type of water lilies that will sustain cold, for example. So it's interesting that is. The impermanence of nature <laughs> is completely made. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And also there was this very subtle, but I thought really telling element of that piece where the lighting was shifting or the conditions were shifting, but it was related to the 1418 war. Yeah, because he paints the last water lilies over the war, the First World War. And so it's an interesting, uh, of course, uh, so there was this tree aquarium and with dates corresponding to either the whole four years and the light. So I, I work with meteorologists to find back the light that was there at the time to reproduce it artificially. So the, the light is, uh, yeah, an artificial light, but reproducing the condition of the time during the First World War. Uh, and that's for one. For another one, it will be October 17 during the revolution. Then there was the, the I don't know, in, in December, the darkest moment of the year in 18, I think, or something like that. Yeah, so the light correspond to this moment. Let's talk about contemporary artists. Which contemporary artists do you most admire? This also change. Uh, <laughs> and, and sometimes sometimes it's just because you, for a while, you are somewhere and uh, you see some, some others uh, doing in that family of thoughts. Uh, and so for a while, you are more with attention but sometimes it's not that. There is also some others. Yeah, it's more the, I like the spirit, but I am not so in with the way the work appear. But the, the, the one that I admire, the one that I like, recently, um, Yan Chang, 
I also like the the work of um, Giro and Siboni, who are uh, French artists, uh, and which I find fascinating work. They're really into speculative uh, fiction and simulation, and really you have to see the the series they did, which is called Unmend. It's a history of computation and humanization. It's a it's a fascinating uh, series. And the artist of uh, of my generation, uh, which of course you mentioned Philippe and Dominique, but also I like Matthew Barney, I like Mark Leckie, you know, hmm. and there's many others. Your point about spirit is really interesting to me because one of the things that you could say about the generation of artists of which you were part and many of your collaborators is that yes of course there are formal connections and there are thematic connections too but I think for instance to take Dominique as an example yours and Dominique's work it's very distinctive you know you can see the cross currents but your individual languages are in fact very different yeah and one of the things that I'm sure is something of a millstone is to always be associated with this notion of relational aesthetics. <laughs> Nicolas Bourdieu's <laughs> phrase, which essentially sort of reflected a culture. And I wonder how, to what extent was that ever useful to you or was it problematic for you? How does it feel to be always mentioned in connection with a particular kind of definition, as it were? Yeah, that, that's true. It's an heavy, uh, it's not that, you, that I am opposing uh, the thought of Nicola at the time. Uh, they were very um, novative in that regard. And I guess also it's the way we are hearing the word relational, you know, it can be broadened, probably not at the moment he wrote. Uh, his book, I guess, also, so of course, there's a part that is heavy to carry and a part that I can also partly, uh, uh, the idea of the encounter uh, is something that I could just uh, keep uh, thinking of. Now, that's maybe the definition of a generation. We are under a period of time under the same type of condition, which, of course, somehow you always try to escape from. But I have said a few times, yeah, we probably see the same garden, same construction of, but we navigate this garden differently. Uh, that's maybe the way I see how a generation uh, have a divergence, but it's a divergence within a garden anyway. I sometimes do not see a big difference between Carl André and Jeff Koons, you know, but, um, you know. What do you have pinned to the studio wall? Do you even have a studio? <laughs> I used not to for years. I have one now, but also that's it. Sometimes it, the walls used to be covered. Now probably with computer it's less. I have files, <laughs> you know, I have links. <laughs> I, have, I have a folder called image. You know, it's a very stupid folder. It's whatever in the day something pop up and it, it, I drag it in this folder. Uh, that's, the, <laughs> that's my wall now. As I say, once I used to have rats in my studio <laughs> hanging around. <laughs> Not and rats I, that you were in a sort of laboratory situation with, but rats that were just rats coming from... Ah, no, 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 rats, laboratory rats. I was like uh, trying to do work with uh, rats and then uh, had a, a feature film in my head with about rats in New York. But so I was studying them and they were hanging in the studio until the moment my assistant asked me to, to get rid of them. <laughs> <laughs> and now I have uh, Alan Moore, uh, The Swamp, uh, the, the image of The Swamp. Ah, <laughs> Alan Moore, uh, so the, Alan Moore, the comic yeah, artist. Yeah, ah. yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> a 
A Brush With is sponsored by Bloombo Connects, the app for arts and culture. The free app offers access to more than 85 cultural organisations through a single download. Among them are several US museums dedicated to particular communities, ranging from the new interactive guide to the Japanese American National Museum, to the DuSable Black History Museum and Education Centre, and the Museum of Chinese in America. Pierre Huig has presented work at the Venice Biennale on multiple occasions, including in the French Pavilion in 2001, and then in the main international exhibition in 2003 and 2007. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you can find a guide to the Venice Biennale with information on all the artists in this year's exhibition and national pavilions, as well as the collateral events throughout Venice and the public programmes connected to the Biennale. To explore digital guides to all the partnering institutions, download the app today. It's available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? I only, and eventually, it's not even an obligation. If when I travel for something, I don't go to museum. But if I if I am somewhere, I do. Like two weeks ago, I was in the Louvre with my daughter. I drag her. <laughs> I drag her through the Assyrian and through the whatever. <laughs> Searching it- for lions, that's the, the, the game. Searching for lions. You know, otherwise uh-huh. otherwise with a kid it's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> but but one of the things that I know that, that you've said before is that when you visit cities often the, you, you see spaces that are not technically museums as kinds of museums and yeah. and, and and you mentioned the garden you, you know and we talked about works in nature and yeah yeah no you're right uh, I, I also go to gardens to site you know to zoo I like to see the it tell a lot uh, to see how a zoo is um, conceived I see them really I, I do not make any difference somehow uh, between a collection of plants, of animals, or artworks, or architecture of objects. And I try to understand the the modality of exhibition, how they are exhibited, and the relation between, again, a subject and an object in that uh, specific uh, modality. That's something I'm always uh, interested in. Are you a student of those sort of great exhibitions of the 19th century? You know, have they figured in your thinking? The World Fair, you are make, you're making... Yeah, the World Fairs, the sort of great exhibition in London in 1851, yeah, yeah. the Crystal Palace, all of that course, kind of thing. Of course, of course, of course. I have millions of books on that. It used to be mine. I remember buying uh, at night in the street to someone the, this book called Pavilion in, in Osaka in the 70s. Um, it's a very beautiful uh, work by Billy Cluver and uh, all these artists who have uh, overtake. Uh, I think it was the Pepsi Pavilion, that Pepsi at the time, which do not exist anymore. Uh, the welfare has been completely overtaken by interest, economic interest. Um, but at the time, you will have even the example of Dali uh, Pavilion. The Pavilion, for a moment, was kind of, or oh, I found in the Pavilion, in the welfare, the perfect model of what I wanted to do. Meaning that the space in which something would take place, this ritual will take place, was sought in the same time as the thing that would take place in. And that to me was the perfect model 
but I'm talking about something like whatever, 20 years ago. <laughs> now, right, yeah. I wanted, I wanted to do uh, something with different parties for welfare, and I quit. Uh, I quit by um, because of what I just said before. It's, it's, it, now it's completely um, uninteresting. I wanted to ask about a particular work that you made, which was set within a museum, but it was a museum that had closed and it was the Musée des Arts et Traditions Populaires. It's called The Host and the Cloud. Yes. And what I wanted to understand about that was how significant was the original museum in the thinking, or was it just the building, which was then, of course, empty, that was the significant part of it? No, you're, you're, of course, this is obviously, it was linked. So this building is in a place that was previously part of, of the welfare. It has been first a human zoo and was for a long time a human zoo. Then it became an attraction park and a kind of a garden and a, and, and a zoo. This is in the Bois de Boulogne. Yeah, Paris, it, is, right? is it, it is now where the LVMH or whatever the Vuitton, whatever thing is. The other thing was interesting is that this museum was um, a part uh, of the Museum of Man somehow. And the museum was uh, moving out. So you will have a building, which is a very large building, completely empty with a kitchen, theater, whatever, galleries, office, etc. It was really like a kind of a student of Le Corbusier who built it. So the classic of all the function within the building. It's like a city, basically. You're in a mini city. And uh, yeah, of course, all these this historical events uh, have somehow uh, were important within the world of Austin the Cloud. Austin the Cloud was like a way to separate uh, somehow from all this condition, all this attachment, all this knowledge, all these events of the past. And it was a very basic uh, rule. Uh, I will have a set of people uh, that I call the employee, you know, the personal, uh, as we say in France, the personnel, which is very interesting yep. with the personnel, something personal. Um, it's a game of, of word. And these people will see different situations arriving in the museum from taken either from the past, so reinterpreted, or really a real people like a real magician, a real etc., a psychologue, a real etc. And they will see things and they will either repeat them or deform them. So it's like really like a, it's a set of rules. So very soon. I would not have a sense of what was going on uh, in, in the museum, which is exactly what I was uh, looking for. It's an algorithm. So it's, a right. it's a living algorithm somehow. And I'm just and capturing. Course, so you just, yeah, you're just capturing, exactly. So you, you have cameras set up to capture the goings on. And then in the process of editing, that's where you create the fiction, as it were, around the work or the structure around the work. Yeah, yeah, but somehow not really. Uh, somehow I was like, a, a once it unfold on every floor, we could not grab what was going on. It was a near impossible. You will have people running with camera, trying to catch things, getting lost themselves within that lab. And the way it's edited, it's in the chronology of how it happened. And, and of course, you go from floor number seven to two to, to basement to floor seven again. To, and then you go in and you create this completely chaotic situation somehow. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? Yeah, as I said, it's difficult to know the condition you belong to, you know, to decipher uh, them. And once you do, you have the chance to to have eventually the possibility to separate yourself from. But 
I grew up, you know, in the seventies, eighties as a teenage, and I think I was very impacted somehow by the punk movement and the literature who then go with like the autonomist thinkers. So I think the punk movement have led me to a certain form of political uh, awareness that I didn't have before. And of course, early eighties, you will also have, you know, whatever hip-hop and whatever, that was not really a, a, a break for me, but internet was another one, I guess, the arrival of, of the net, and that was something that I think still with the idea of the meta-narrative. It was somehow a sort of natural tool for you to embrace. In it way. was so natural because I used to spend my days in library, which I still think is an interesting because you really fall onto the next books that you didn't expect, where, of course, it is more driven uh, by algorithm today, uh, AI, that will drive you to whatever they, mm. you know. But if you know how to, to escape that, then that's fine. But, uh, yeah, I used to spend my days in library, and, I, and then suddenly there was this magic tool <laughs> that <laughs> I could stay home <laughs> and, and navigate elsewhere, navigate um, further. I hadn't realised until I was reading about you that, that you had been to New York quite young. I knew you lived in New York for a period, but you went to New York in the 80s and and sort of encountered that scene with, for instance, you hung out with Keith Haring for a bit. And, yeah. And, and I wondered about what impact that had on you. I mean, obviously, you, you would never describe your work as relating to that New York scene of the 80s to much degree. But I know that, for instance, you were making posters with the Ripoland brothers and others that yeah. you were making quite direct works on the street in the 1980s. So tell me about that, if there was any connection. I was 20 and I, uh, with different uh, artists at uh, the school, putting posters on existing street posters, the, the, the advertising posters. So the work was like... Uh, made in the night, cover in the morning, and usually after one or two days, it was again recovered by the ad another advertising. I still think that's something from that period I, I kept, at this temporality, the moment of a work appearing and disappearing. The collaboration with others uh, was very important. Somehow, it's without knowing, uh, it was, of course, I discovered uh, in the same years, not so far from that moment, uh, the work of Daniel Buren, uh, which was somehow uh, um, even a more radical uh, use of that. But uh, yeah, and, and of course, we were uh, exhibited in, at Tony Chafrazi in, in New York. <laughs> I don't know how I think we spent the whole month eating cheesecake and... <laughs> We, did, we didn't took it seriously. We were just very happy to be there. I mean, I met Warhol, Basquiat. I was in the Basquiat studio in, with Kissarin, with going to see early hip-hop mm. um, and all this, whatever, the clubs, the danceteria, the, the, all that. Mm. So, yeah, it was not, not that it had impact. Uh, maybe it had a counter-impact. I think I was cured by the need of show off. And <laughs> I think I, it's uh, on that period, that's what I think I have kept. I'm done with the need of, uh, you know, appearing and whatever. Which writers or poets do you return to? There is many, but uh, mainly, 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 I would say it's uh, science fiction uh, writers, either cyberpunk for a while or not. I like Ballard, Kedik, Shana Mieville, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, but I say often Biocazares, but for 
the invention of Morel, which is still a book that I'm strike me, or Huismans. Yeah. And it was Huismans Turtle that was in yeah, the documentary. Yeah, exactly. Lost <laughs> the jewelry cover, cover with jewelry. <laughs> that this beautiful book. Yeah, there was, there was in Documenta uh, work in, until the, uh, this uh, fragment of narrative of different fragments of time that were lost, that will become re-affected by, by living, you know, uh, but also by the contingency of the site. But who else? Um, I'm trying to finish the Ted Chiang book. I'm reading Borges. I have read Borges and still like it. But yeah, mm. also 19th century, you know, like Baudelaire, Poe, you know, Marie Shelley, Tard. The, you know, the fragment of, uh, I don't know what's the title in English now. In French is a f fragment of a future history. Um, it's a very beautiful book of Tard. Mm. But also I read philosophy or I glance at philosophy. And uh, I really like Tristan Garcia. Preciado, I read Preciado, Morton, you know, but uh, Meyasu, of course, I, I read. Uh, you know, it's I, I move around according to the need, <laughs> you know. Uh. It strikes me that even if there aren't specific references, you can see that sort of philosophical science fiction connection. Like, for instance, After a Life Ahead, the piece for Munster, which, I, you know, genuinely think this is one of the most significant works made in the last 10 years. You know, everybody that went to Munster came back completely astonished by that work. <laughs> And in there, you, you can see the landscape is so clearly evoking kind of science fiction landscapes. And then there's this idea that there are cancer cells being bred in an aquarium <laughs> but also there was a distinct philosophical structure around it right as well so can you say about the way that different forms of reading collide in the work is that a kind of natural process a kind of almost a kind of um osmotic process or is it more studied you know you read a book and you think i need to make a work about this sort of thing uh, no that will not be that because it will be too illustrative and also actually I, there's not one book that i would like to even illustrate you know whatever literature or philosophy i it's just that sometimes they give images they open intuition they open possibilities i will say that they have become a part of a toolbox in which then you build the work but the tools are not the work uh, they help the work sometimes Uh, let's talk about music. What music or other audio do you listen to while you're working? I am not. <laughs> I am not listening music uh, as I think. Uh, but I do listen music, but uh, I commit then to. It depends the mood, but it also there's different type of moments. If I'm thinking, I'm not putting music. I would, but I am not making. I am not someone who make. As I am not making, I am not listening music as a background, entertaining, you know, like a ritournelle. But if I am uh, working on a work in which there is music, of course, I'm going to go deep in. You mm -hmm. know. Otherwise, yeah, I can hear noise music, electronic. I like baroque. I like uh, viol de gambe. You know, ah. from Baroque music, mm. I can listen acid house and uh, <laughs> hip hop and punk music. I can whatever at home. There's always music somehow. 
I love the way that you've used music in some of your pieces. That, for instance, there's a, a joyous piece I think called "The Housing mm-hmm. Projects," in which two buildings seems to be talking to each other through music. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you say something about that piece? That was Pansonic, the band, actually. Uh, yeah, that was an image of where I grew up in the 70s in the suburb of Paris, you know. I was taking the train every day, the, the, the subway, you know. And I would see this in the early morning, in the fog, these buildings waking up um, because people were going to work, I'm assuming. And uh, there was like a, me half dreaming, you know, uh, in, uh, against the, the subway glass, looking at this kind of dialogue. Uh, and I was trying to, to bring it back somehow, to bring back this, what we call in France, the Grands Ensemble, who was a politic in the 50s, 60s, and mainly 70s, where they suddenly overtake the whole. Um, it was also linked to immigration and how to provide a frame for that. And so it's an image of that moment somehow. It's an image of a moment in time right. that I tried to recreate artificially. The music was pan-sonic, which was, I don't know if they are still active, but uh, I was very interested in that moment. It's like electronic, uh, kind of uh, noise electronic. It's not Merzbau. But it's, it have this age. I wanted to ask you about John Cage because there were two pieces you made towards the end of the 90s, I think, that were really powerfully using Cage. The one which is Silent Score, where you're working with 4 minutes 33, and then Le Carillon, which is working with a beautiful piece of music by Cage called Dream. Yeah, it's a wind charm, yeah. Yeah, tell me about that piece. Yeah, yeah. The first one, as you mentioned, is the 4 minute 33 classic silence piece of Cage, which... Cage used to do, I mean, not only him, but uh, used to do recording of this 4 minute 33 second. One of them was in the countryside, I'm assuming, because you hear some bees, some bell of church in the back or mini wind and things. So, yeah, the recording, which is mainly, mainly a supposedly silence, is not really so. I have a trans passage from sound to notation. And then the score can be played, basically, loudly, you know. Uh, the other one is the wind chime, which is every note of uh, Dream, of Cage. So, of course, the original score of Cage have, a, have a, of course, a linearity. And I took every single note of Dream and I uh, create a for each single note, uh, a tube, it's become a wind chime. So now the whole score, if you want, is open. And then, of course, as he hangs on the tree, it's just basically chaotically uh, do his thing. What other media influence your work? Cinema has. The cinema of today is a bit deceptive for me, but that's fine. I mean, uh, I got a moment with it, and now it's something I'm, I'm more interested in actually looking at the work of uh, Giro and Siboni and the way they in, in, in interrogate uh, what you can do with an image. Dao was an experiment that was interesting to me. But also, once in a while, I read more than I do uh, about uh, games, so video games, and yeah, I... I I don't practice them, I don't over-practice them, but I over-look at them uh, in the way they are. And, and I'm trying to find within them an uh, also more radical use uh, when it's video games that are not so much uh, narratively driven, for example, or not for players, you know, that they auto-generate. And so I, I, I'm, I'm looking at that uh, also. 
there was a very particular moment where you were looking at films in a very it seems to me really interesting way and you took specific films and reconstructed them or or took excerpts from them can you tell me about that body of work there were a number of works around sort of late 90s again where you worked with the form of cinema and and investigated it really interestingly yeah yeah totally there was this sentence of Pasolini saying the cinema is the written language of reality and then I was really was fascinating sentence to me and, and I was trying to say can you reverse that if the cinema is the written language of reality, if I then read <laughs> orally, <laughs> that's what is written. Am I going back to reality or am I going elsewhere? You know, That was a departure point of the idea of the repetition or the idea then turned into the, the idea of the reenactment. And I did that work around that... Um, a real bank robbery, uh, and that was then turned into a film. Dog Day uh, Afternoon. Exactly, Dog Day Afternoon. And I, I, and at the end, they were saying it's based on the real event. So, yeah, I, I went to, to New York to, to find back the, the bank robber, and I uh, he accept to reenact the moment of his being confused with the mediation of his own uh, reality, being so confused that he was saying in the real, you know, like, so he was in, in the real fiction. So he was very, you could see that it was a state. It's, I call that film the, the third memory. And yeah, it's, a, it's basically a reenactment. And it's the, there's a split screen once in a while where you see him reenacting, recreate the bank and he have everything. He can eventually direct the camera and direct the, the people. So you see him directing everything. As you see Al Pacino in Dog Day Afternoon. So yeah, yeah, you have like this confusion state that I was interested in. And it seems to me that all of those works, working with cinema, connected to memory in some way or another. Like So when you were working with the piece called Remake, which looked at Hitchcock's Weir Window, that again was working with our own memories of, of that sort of iconic film and the way that it could be reinterpreted in a kind of, yeah, sort of in a humdrum space. Or a, yeah, yeah. That's, that was more uh, about the variation or the interpretation, because in that work that you mentioned, I literally copy brutally the Hitchcock film we were just going with a VHS stopping saying okay now you enter on the right and you say ta 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 okay go and of course we take one shot that was so the whole film was the exact uh, remake of uh, the Hitchcock film so I was not saying to the actor to copy the character that Kelly was was uh, interpreting I was asking the actor to copy Kelly you know, Grass Kelly, for example. So that's that's what I mean. It's it was more about copying the interpretation. So it's an interpretation of an interpretation. It's really like how something gets really. It's a certain form of entropy. But of course, as you say, we all have that film in our head. So as you look at the film, the original is in your interpretation. So you you for example, you will remember it in a certain way. I will remember in a certain way, and then you have this kind of. Each one have his own comparative tools, you know, and see the mistakes. So that's what what I was into, I guess, at that time. <laughs> Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? 
Yeah, it's reading. I think reading. I, I don't spend a day without reading, searching for something. I, I, it's also looking at things. I mean, it's I, I, whatever. It's reading, or I search for. I read an article on that. I read a page of a, a book or two. Um, so yeah, I'm, every day I'm, I'm I'm trying to drag something that um, it's a joy, or I'm trying to find for something that uh, I find inhabitual, uh, not banal, you know. Do you use reading both as a, a form of helping production of work, but also sometimes as a form of escaping from work, if you like? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, you're very right. You're very right to say escaping from work. Yeah, it's actually probably more the second. <laughs> <laughs> no, m- meaning in the sense that I always try to forget what I'm doing. I forget already naturally because I don't have like uh, memory of names or memory of, um, of things that I read. But once I finish a work who has, for example, dragged me for two years, I, I do everything I can to escape uh, my patterns. I return, more or less, but, but I try to do everything I can to escape. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? This is difficult. <laughs> we were talking about Duchamp, large glass. I can have a drawing of it. I know that he did. Uh, I like diagrams. Mm. I like drawings, very simple drawings. There was a moment that I was trying to buy the Jacques Lacan, uh, the real, the imaginary, and the, yeah, so, so that, the three, uh, the symbolic, the, the, the intersection between the, the three. Uh, I could live with a with a, with few diagrams. Yeah. Or I could live in Lascaux, but I know it's not a, a cultural. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I would be happy to be in Lascaux. That sounds nice. <laughs> yeah. And also, I suppose the good thing about with the drawing of the large glass, you have the notes too, right? So uh, the notes. Yeah, yeah. And it seems to me the notes seem to tap into so much of oh, what yeah. you what you do. And yeah, yeah. The notes are a game, or like they are the, the. It's not only the drawings. The sentence is the preparatory. Yeah. yeah the, the mistakes. The, 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 it's just a labyrinth of pleasure. Yeah. You know? And lastly, what is art for? That is also not so easy. <laughs> I was thinking maybe that it's to toy for aliens, with aliens, you know. That's what I think maybe art is, to toy with otherness. It's maybe, as I was saying earlier on, it's maybe to dress chaos with something that is before knowledge, that's before meaning, before language. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you. Pierre Huyg's Variance is on view permanently at Kistefos in Jevnaka in Norway. His exhibition Offspring is at the Kunsten Museum of Modern Art in Aalborg in Denmark until the 30th of October. And Pierre also features in the exhibition Une Seconde d'Eternité at the Bourse de Commerce in Paris until the 26th of September. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. Do also subscribe to our other podcasts, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues, which is back in September. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the Art Newspaper podcast are Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentel. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway 
today and a big thank you to Pierre Huyg. See you next week for A Brush With Adam Pendleton. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.